Hi, I'm TechCrunch Managing Editor Daryl Etherington. Welcome back to the TechCrunch Podcast, where we cover everything you need to know about the week's top stories in tech from the people who wrote them. Before we talk with some TechCrunch writers, here are some of the biggest stories of the week. We'd be remiss not to mention the mass shooting that occurred in Uvalde, Texas this past week. Obviously a tragedy for all involved. We are covering the parts of the story where it crosses over with tech on the site, and you can go read our continuing coverage there. But this is primarily a political issue and a issue around lawmakers in the United States, and they're the ones who have the real power to make any kind of difference here. So I encourage you to go read more about that in publications that have more of a focus on that side of things. I also encourage you to reach out to your lawmakers and express uh, what kind of differences you'd like to see. Obviously, tighter gun control is the key ingredient here. So go ahead and make your opinions known. Ron Miller on our enterprise team wrote about Broadcom's acquisition of VMware in a massive $61 billion deal. It's a kind of interesting acquisition because Broadcom is a chip maker and VMware focuses on virtualization software. VMware also recently spun out from Dell, who had previously acquired it in a different deal. So why is a chip maker acquiring a virtualization software company? Well, in Ron's piece, he quotes Holger Mueller, an analyst at Constellation Research, who says VMware does not have the roller coaster of ups and downs of the chip market and brings Broadcom to a more steady trajectory. So that can explain a lot. Basically, Broadcom is subject to the whims and vagaries of the hardware chip industry, which, as we've seen lately, can be quite variable, especially when supply issues come into play. VMware, on the other hand, pretty even keel. You can predict their earnings and revenue in a really reasonable way. So it helps even out the business overall and their balance sheet quarter to quarter. And that's kind of how Dell was using them as well. It's also worth noting that VMware's products are like a really key resource when companies are doing chip transitions, like the one from Intel to Apple Silicon, for example. And Windows, too, is looking at a similar one. Microsoft just announced a developer console for ARM-based processors that could see a similar transition occur on the Windows side. Jack Dorsey stepped down from Twitter's board this week. Taylor Hatmaker, who was on our last episode of the TechCrunch pod, so you can go listen to that, talking about something very different. That's a teaser. Former Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey's time at the company has come to an end, though. Dorsey stepped down from Twitter's board of directors Wednesday, and that change is effective as of the company's shareholders meeting. Dorsey had already begun to distance himself from Twitter. He left the company's chief executive role late last year to focus instead on Block, which was formerly known as Square. And there's a lot of change on the horizon for the social platform because SpaceX and Tesla CEO Elon Musk is still poised to buy Twitter. So Musk also fits into this in a different way in that an ally of his on the board, Egan Durbin, also resigned from the board this week after being voted out by shareholders. It turns out, as of this recording, that that was probably due to him being on too many boards and shareholders having a problem with that. So they've said that they're not going to accept the resignation in a bit of an unusual move. And instead, he's probably going to be forced to leave one of the other boards that he's on. Speaking of Elon, yesterday Taylor posted that Twitter shareholders are suing Elon Musk, alleging that he manipulated the price of the company's stock for his own benefit. 
benefit. This is something we saw coming after he failed to disclose his purchase of a number of stocks in a timely manner. The suit alleges that Musk was likely trying to secure a discount by casting doubt on his commitment and disparaging the company. Since Musk's initial commitment to purchase the company was announced, tech stocks, including Tesla, which accounts for the vast bulk of Musk's wealth, took a big dive. Following Musk's comments, Twitter shares also dipped significantly, a phenomenon the suit alleges is highly unusual given the company's agreed-upon buyout price. The SEC has basically indicated in other comments that this is how it would have to pay out. So even if they potentially think that Musk may have acted in bad faith, they don't have the resources to pursue every time this happens. It's really a David and Goliath situation where the SEC is massively underfunded compared to the billionaires who are out there manipulating the bulk of the market. So it is up to private shareholders to levy suits like this in order to exact punishment. All right, let's get into our TechCrunch writers. This week, we talked to Natasha Mascarenas about the ongoing layoffs, Anita Ramaswamy about Adam Newman's pivot to crypto, and Devin Coldaway about AI-generated art. First story this week, talking about the continuing layoffs seen throughout the startup industry. This article was written by Natasha Mascarenas and Amanda Silberling. Let's talk to Natasha about the details. Hi, Natasha. Thanks for coming on. Oh, my God. Thanks for having me on this super new show. Super new. Yeah, it's going to be second episode ever. So, you know, exciting stuff. But uh, second episode ever. No pressure. (laughs) No pressure. We just have to hook them. Like they're going <laughs> to, they're going to either subscribe or it, the review is going to be a reflection of you specifically. Natasha. I'm glad we're talking about a super positive topic. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. So today we're talking about your article about a third straight week of tech layoffs and it doesn't look like that's going to be the end. Natasha, do you want to take us through what it was you wrote about? Yeah. I mean, it's felt like it's been a very like May specific shutdown of a ton of layoffs being announced across all startups. But I think it really began when Hopin and Peloton had those pretty dramatic layoffs a few months ago, even, which is when I at least started tuning into how pandemic boomed companies were starting to scale back. But this time kind of started, I think, by Thrasio, Mm -hmm. a startup that helps like aggregate Amazon marketplace startups. It began kind of laying off people. And then we started seeing like Robinhood, Main Street, Mural on deck, data robot, section four. I mean, startups across all stages and sectors starting to cut some percent of their staff. Yeah. And it's been a really weird phenomenon because I think, as I said, like it first started off with these really obvious companies that maybe were enjoying a pandemic boom. Now it feels like anyone is kind of citing we're in an incredibly rough market. Right. And so we need to scale back in the form of our employees. Yeah, I mean, no one was surprised that the first two companies you mentioned saw their kind of cuts because they were they were obviously in trouble and it was like telegraphed quite a ways out, right? But to your point, it's now seeming like very few companies are untouched. And when you talk about the list, that's the list that comes to our attention. I mean, whether through digging or through tips or however else, right? And as is always the case, that's typically just the tip of the iceberg for these things, right? Like there's a massive amount of submerged activity going on that we're only however many people we are. I mean, you're only one person, Tasha. You can't possibly be covering (laughs) 
all of the layoffs that are going on, right? No, no, no one person can do it and no one publication can do it. Usually, yeah, when you see this kind of flurry of activity, it's indicative of a larger trend. Does, does that kind of match up with what you're, you're hearing from people? Yeah, I mean, we didn't start this off by expecting to cover it in a weekly basis, just rounding up all the stories that we've done. And now it's three weeks and we're going to be going on four. Like we already have that draft set up. And so yeah. I think that it's like the beginning of a long story. And I, I'm also starting to see two camps of startups pop up. There's a startups that very clearly needed to have kind of done everything they could and now need to lay people off. Right. And there's the ones that similar to what we saw in like March 2020 saw that everyone else is citing the market and they're kind of taking this as a chance to cut people. Yeah. And so it's a difficult role as a journalist, I think, to know what is the actual reason companies are letting go of people. It's, it's super complicated, but yeah. something that I think we should try answering. No, and I, I'm glad you brought up the beginning of the pandemic because I think that's probably in recent enough memory for most people, even listening to this podcast, to have very specific memories of what went on then. And it does feel similar. And one thing when you were just talking about it when I was reading this article and also some of the other layoff articles is what happened at the beginning of the pandemic was a lot of companies used it as cover, like very legitimate yeah. cover, but cover for shoring up problems that were perhaps already occurring anyway, right? And I think in a few instances you could really point to it and be like look this was obviously just like an ongoing thing but yeah. in most of the cases it was more difficult to tease out what how much was planned and how much wasn't like do you have any kind of sense of you know how much startups are kind of like I already had these things in the queue like how much your startups planning for this and sort of identifying ahead of time like here's what is perhaps redundant or perhaps we can rethink in case a sort of not necessarily a black swan event but something like that comes along yeah I think the weird elephant in the room is that this time when all these layoffs are happening, there's more money involved. A lot of these startups raised a ton of capital during the pandemic. So their yeah. employees rightfully thought that they had a lot more runway than they maybe let on or are letting on now. And so I think that's the difficult part. It complicates a little bit of what you're saying too. But to answer your question about kind of how I gauge, I think like one story I wrote recently is about Latch. It is yep. a prop tech meets smart lock startup. And for them, it felt like this very clear, like this is what they're leading up to. They had this like very troubled SPAC debut a few months ago. Then they had their CFO leave suddenly to be like, effective immediately. Then they kind of were missing projections and, and now have had a layoff and then another round of layoffs. And that's a public company. So mm -hmm. we do get to see a little bit more obvious of a trajectory towards that. I think private companies is a lot more difficult, but I mean, you read the fast stories. I think a lot of people knew that the fast failure was coming as well. Mm -hmm. The layoffs are just kind of the first and loudest way to explain that. Yeah. And I think, I mean, there's another data point that I saw this morning that struck me as perhaps a way to, to tease out some of what's actually financial responsible belt tightening and what's kind of like using it as cover. And it was yeah. actually a YC company, Magic Belt, a former guest on our other podcast, found Hannah Mohan talking about how she was taking to heart the YC memo that they said yeah. that was all about kind of like, okay, well, like get your ducks in order, like make sure you have runway or whatever. Yeah, take it seriously. Yeah. And Hannah was saying like, she she outlined all the measures that they were taking. It's a good tweet thread. We'll, we'll probably link it for folks to read. But basically her points were, 
we've frozen hiring and we're cutting spend in a lot of ways, like team-wide retreats and a few other things that are kind of like nice tabs, but perhaps extras Yeah, and, you know, tightening the marketing budget, things like that. And that struck me as kind of like following these things in good faith and not kind of using it as air cover, if you know what I mean. Does that seem fair? I mean, I'm sure there are places where, yes, we also unfortunately just have to do layoffs and no one, I don't think anyone enjoys it regardless. Right. But like, yeah. That to me was an indicator of like, right, that seems to be the measure right now is stretch out your runway as much as you can. But these massive reversals with like significant percentage layoffs seems either your your spend previously was way off the charts and you had no sense of financial responsibility or I don't know. Does it seem legitimate to you or does it seem like an opportunity? Right? It's so weird because I we talked about this on equity, actually, because we got a founder on and we were like we feel like everyone's just announcing layoffs. Like, and there has to be more things that happen first. And the founder, Josh Agundu, he was basically just like, this should be, if you're an early stage startup, cutting people should be your last thing you do because one, you probably don't have like thousands of people. And so if it's only going to extend you from two months to three months, that might not be the legacy you want to leave behind. And we were just in a hiring crunch, right? So it's like if anything turns around and then you're stuck again in that position, like that's massive spend, right? Exactly. I think the very human thing is like, if you're going to take out the people that first bet on you as a founder, that could follow you for the rest of your career in a way. I mean, and that that is worse for probably diverse founders, unfortunately. So I think that in terms of finding air cover and people doing it for the right reasons or more legitimate reasons, like I'm finding a little piece and hoping that karma plays out a little bit for people who do it without good faith. But the other kind of thing that happens is once I write a layoff story, if it's about a startup that people feel especially emotional about that they were wronged, that's when I start getting a lot more follow-ups. And so it's not a perfect example. It's not a perfect test, but usually when you publish and you get a lot of response, it means that there was something other than just the market that happened here. Yeah. And and I think that is also reflective, you know, and I mentioned earlier about the hidden unseen iceberg of it, right? Is like a lot of people have been in situations where they've lost their jobs because of circumstances beyond their control and they didn't go trying to exact some kind of justice out of it or make sure that it was like transparently brought to light because it was handled transparently probably with them and they felt like it was a fair decision given the circumstances, right? Like those aren't the people who come talking to us generally. It's because there's a situation that they feel is wrong. And then like typically what we do is go out and find other stories that back that up to prove out that like, oh, it's not just one individual who's wrong. It's like a company who is that has acted in perhaps an inappropriate manner. Yeah, I know. Devin said this thing where he was like, tech layoffs don't happen to companies, they happen to people. And it's going to be my mantra as I cover this. Yeah. Because one, I don't know, maybe I'm just like too optimistic here, but I struggle to understand how companies are still messing up, laying off people like that's just been happening forever. So I don't get how the Zoom that crashes in the middle and your email is revoked or you see your severance check showing up in your bank are like things that still happen to employees. Yeah, I just I don't know. That feels to me like so absurd. It does feel absurd. It feels like a thing that like you just go down a checklist and like these are the base things you make sure are ticked (laughs) off. Right. So that you don't get the obvious and immediate blowback, but there is, it just seems like there's a lack of concern in some cases, which is, you know, troubling and unfortunate, but we're here to report it when it happens. Right. So. Yeah. I mean, I think if there's like any sort of positives, the probably the wrong word, but a impact that I'm seeing happen for people who weren't laid off yet or who just have been buying this whole like 
tech is up into the right narrative Mm -hmm. during the pandemic. I think a lot of like employees are starting to realize that their jobs are not a given. Yeah. Kind of like the promise of tech, your equity always going up and making a ton of money and it is like starting to get a little bit more realistic, which feels like a healthy place to be because we all know that so many startups fail. So I feel like there was a lot of bait and switching that maybe happened to no one's fault in the beginning. And maybe we're going to see some correction with how many people want to do tech. That is an optimistic take. And I think it's nice that people are kind of reevaluating their worth in that light. Right. And it's like not just assumed like, oh, because a startup has offered you X, Y, Z, including, you know, options, which are always just sort of magical dreams written on paper. Not (laughs) much more than that. But like those things shouldn't you should never exchange, you know, your true value as a human being for those things. Right. And I think that is a, a positive outcome that can come out of this. That's really good to see that sunny side because it must be hard to do, especially with the frequency of this and the duration of it, right? It must be hard on you as a reporter to be covering this stuff so consistently. It's weird because I feel like it's like it gets clinical after a while. Like your lead is the same. Your kicker is the same. No Mm. comment or no details on severance. And so I'm thinking about ways to not brighten it up, but like get more to share and give people direction. But I thought you said something interesting in our internal chat today about how it's also just like the next phase of a economic cycle. Like this was really predicted and inevitable in a way. So I also want to like find a way to remind people that this was like known it's coming. What do we do next? And not just kind of act like it's like this random lightning strike and now everything's like screwed up. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's very hard to see that perspective from inside of these economic cycles, but it It is something people should take to heart is that these things, just because of the way that we've structured our financial system are bound to happen. And it means that there is positive outcome. Like we talked to so many people who perhaps had a reversal in like the first dot com boom or even in 2008 or whatever, and then are now very successful, right? And took the hard lessons they learned that time and applied them to the company this time and were able to weather difficulties, right? So I think that is the outcome to look for. Yeah. And I think, you know, you're doing a good job of highlighting what are the things that people can learn from this, which is the most you can do in situations like these, right? Thank you. Yeah, no, feel free, everyone who's listening to tip me your layoffs or people you're hearing are being laid off because there's a lot more where we're going to be writing about this for, I feel like, a couple months. Yeah, and remember, Natasha's on your side and we'll see you on the other side of it too, right? (laughs) There we go. Should that be my tagline? Yeah. Every time I sign off a call, I'm on your side, but I'll see you on the other one. (laughs) (laughs) Our next story is all about WeWork founder Adam Newman moving into the crypto space with a new company backed by Andreessen Horowitz. This one was written by Anita Ramaswamy. Let's talk to Anita now. Hi, Anita. Hi, Daryl. How are you? Good. Great. I'm especially excited to talk to you because this is like a bingo, like a tech industry bingo article that you could, you couldn't really ask for many more things to be crammed in here. So No, definitely not. (laughs) So specifically, we're talking about the article you wrote this week for TechCrunch about Adam Newman's blockchain-based comeback story. He's got Andreessen on board. He's got quite a few people on board. General Catalyst, Samsung Next, RSE Ventures, and a bunch more people. But I just, I couldn't believe this when I read it. I was very, what was your reaction when you, did you, how did you get this? Did you get pitched it or where, how did you come across this? Yeah, I I just, I saw that, um, so I think Reuters ended up like sort of breaking the news and then a bunch of other outlets were also like publishing about it. And my yeah. reaction was just like, oh God, like he's, he's back. I, I actually just finished We Crashed a couple of weeks ago. So really, right. uh, you know, 
not a good time for public sentiment about Adam Newman. And the second I saw, I think, a tweet about the original article, I was like, I have to dig more into this and figure out what happened here. Well, thank you for doing that. And yeah, in case our audience isn't familiar with Adam Newman by name, although his notoriety would make that difficult. Yeah, he is the subject of We Crashed, which is a fictionalized version of the story of WeWork. And this is what he's doing after WeWork. I think, you know, a lot of people have been wondering what that would be. And it turns out it's this company called Flow Carbon. Can you give us a quick outline of what exactly it is that Flow Carbon does? Yeah, I can I can tell you what Flow Carbon says it does. I mean, exactly what it says it does. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so this is a startup that Adam Newman started with his spouse and co-founder, Rebecca, who was also in the movie played by Anne Hathaway. She was great. And he also, I think there are two other co-founders who were working for his family office. And the startup is basically, what it does is they sell tokenized carbon credits that are on the blockchain. Well, um, you so, already lost me. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. <laughs> and it's funny, right? Because crypto is like a great place for a sketchy founder to come and have their redemption story, um, yes, to be honest. Yeah. but. It's, I mean, it's a place that can hide a lot of sins, I suppose. Uh, and, you know, that's been one of the yeah. criticisms against it. I think even people who are proponents of the technology acknowledge that, like, yes, this is a part and parcel of the industry is, you know. Yeah, it's lack of regulation and it's so yeah. new. So it's a good place to to hide some grift. But, um, but no, yeah. so they're selling carbon credits. They're putting them on the blockchain. And carbon credits are basically just companies are usually the buyers of carbon credits. And it gives the company the right to emit a certain amount of greenhouse gases. Right. And the way that that works is it's offset, basically. So when you buy a carbon credit, it's backed by some sort of project. And I guess the simplest example I can think of is like planting a certain number of trees. So like, yeah. let's say you plant 100 trees and you buy that carbon credit and it's like, okay, now I can emit the same amount of carbon that the trees would have accounted for and then I come out neutral. Yeah, yeah. And famously, Tesla has made a lot of its money by selling carbon credits. It's Well, it's maybe not something a lot of people realize about the business, but a huge part of their balance sheet is actually through the sale of carbon credits based on, you know, their vehicles being low emission and therefore their you know, preventing some amount of carbon offset into the environment. So yeah, yeah. It's a huge part of the reason that they actually reach profitability. Like if you take that out, I think a lot of quarters, they don't reach profitability. So (laughs) wow. Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But it's something that even in recent in sustainability and kind of like green tech, like recently people have been saying, you know, not all carbon offsets or credits are created the same. And you got to look at more kind of like, well, what is the what are the guarantees that the offset remains in place? And, you know, like because you mentioned forestry. Right. And if you do like a reforestation project, in some cases, those there's not really guarantees that those forests will be there in, say, 20 years or whatever. So the lifetime of the credit might be, you know, not actually what it's claiming to be. But there's a lot more accounting going into trying to say, like, which ones are good and which ones are bad. But yeah, the carbonization, the, the tokenization, I should say, of this is something that, you know, I'm not super familiar with. So what do they claim is the benefit of putting these on the blockchain and making them tokens? Yeah. So I guess what these companies say, and Flow Carbon isn't the only one, there are a bunch of other startups in this space. You have um, Moss is one of them, Toucan's another one of them, but it's become a trend to do tokenized carbon credits. And the reason to put them on the blockchain, according to these companies, is that it allows the project providers to raise capital more easily, so create some liquidity, and it allows these credits to be traded more easily on exchanges. Mm. And the big part for Flow Carbon is that they're saying they're driving down costs for companies. So companies, or for the projects, 
to actually right. list a carbon credit. So normally they'd have to pay much higher fees, but if they list it on the blockchain, it costs them less to list their credits and then have buyers buy them and have people trade them. Yeah, and that's something you also hear in the DeFi industry, in the distributed finance industry, right? Is like you're eliminating a lot of the people who kind of stand men. in between. Yeah, exactly. The middlemen who just who are taking fees and not necessarily adding any value, thereby lowering the overall cost of the endeavor. Is that kind of effectively what they're claiming here? Yeah, that's effectively what they're claiming. And in order to raise money for that, they raised this venture round, but they also did part of that fundraise through selling their own cryptocurrency, which they're calling the Goddess Nature Token. Okay, just had to wait share that. I thought that was pretty <laughs> wild. <laughs> Yeah, I, I saw it referred to in short as GNT and I was like, wait, uh, what? And then I, I scrolled back because I was skimming. I admit to skimming. I should have read more closely, but I scrolled back <laughs> to find the actual meaning of the thing and then saw it spelled out as goddess nature token. And I was like, oh, OK, naturally. Yes, that's what you would go with. Yeah. But do they provide any justification for that? That's just the name they, they settled that's, that's on? That's the name they, they came up with. And they okay. are trying to you know elevate the world's consciousness. So, you know, who who am I to criticize, I guess? But no, GNT, basically what it is, is it's it's a crypto token and it's backed by a bundle of carbon credits. Okay. So that that's kind of what like you can buy, sell and trade the token. And that's what makes it sort of easier for companies to, I guess, get involved in the market. Gotcha. And I did see, I didn't realize this was a subtweet of this until just now, but I saw one, <laughs> I think... <laughs> This morning or like yesterday or something, but it was, wait, all the activity of trading these generates so much carbon and the exchange, like what is the purpose of the exchange and speculating on it? There's so much involved in the actual speculation. Is it offsetting its benefits or do they provide any kind of calculus around that? Yeah, it's a good question. And I actually don't think it's one that anyone's too qualified to answer at this point. Sure, because, right. the, you know, with, well, when it comes to the blockchain, like Bitcoin and Ethereum right now use this mechanism to validate transactions that's super energy intensive. But that's not true of all blockchains. Yeah. And I guess Adam Newman's startup is using Celo, which is a proof of stake blockchain. It's a little more energy efficient. But at the end of the day, there's no really easy way to measure whether on net, is it beneficial to have these credits on the blockchain? Because no matter what you're doing, like no matter which chain you're using, that's still energy consumption that is required in order to tokenize the credits. Right. Yeah. So it's a bit, it's a mystery box, essentially. Yeah. The data is all over the place, I think, yeah. in that realm. Yeah. <laughs> so like what though, what, what gave people the idea that like, oh, let's back, I know you can't read minds, but did like, <laughs> what's your impression of why people would say, you know what the best bet is, is this guy, Adam Newman, who did we work famously and which was real physical assets, right? Like you couldn't get more sort of like tangible if you tried than we work essentially yeah. in terms of what it actually did on the ground. And yet it was essentially a smoke and mirrors operation or a shell game basically, right? Right. So what do you think led to people including Andreessen Horowitz who must have put a large stake in to lead the round saying, you know what, this is what we want to back. I think they just have so much money and they are just kind of throwing things at the wall and, and you know, some, some, some of them will stick. But at the yeah. end of the day, it's like, you know, there are tons of startups already doing this. I'm super intrigued that they chose the one that has Adam Newman behind it. But obviously right. he's not being advertised as the face of it, right? There's a CEO who they've appointed from the outside. And when you look at the deal announcement that Andreessen did, it's the CEO and I think someone else who's listed on the front. So I think they're trying to be a little quiet about the fact that it's it's Newman's startup. But at the end of the day, he is a co-founder. Do they mention him at all in there? 
They do. And I, they yeah. have to, but they don't talk about it more than they need to. And I was reading, like I said, the deal write up or the blog post from Andreessen. And they were sort of just, you know, saying things about how this is to, to help mitigate climate change and help save the planet through the blockchain. And I think, I think really their crypto team invested in this because if you are in crypto, you know, crypto has a, a complicated history with the environment yeah. because of those proof of work blockchains, because of Bitcoin, because of Ethereum and, and their emissions. So a lot of crypto people who want to see the industry thrive long term also want to show that they are conscious and aware of the environmental impacts and actually trying to do something to stop them. So there's a big movement called regenerative finance within crypto. And right. those are people who are trying to use blockchain solutions to to help the environment. Now, whether that's going to be effective or not is sort of, that's a bigger question. Yeah, because we've already talked about how mired in sort of unknowns this is, and it's a few levels removed. Have you seen any other examples, just out of curiosity, of things in the refi world that have maybe a more direct or a more tangible sort of like tie to doing good with the environment? Yeah, I think Moss, Moss Earth is a big project out of Brazil mm -hmm. and they have, it was a while back when I talked to them and, you know, like with Flow Carbon, they do have certified carbon credits, so they are being audited in some way, Yeah, but they're Brazil based and they work in the Amazon rainforest and it seems like they have a much more like local approach and they've also mm -hmm. been working a lot more closely with crypto companies. Like Adam Newman's company is using the blockchain, but any company can buy, sell and trade right. the credits in the ecosystem. But right. I still think it's wild that he's the one who sort of attracted the funding because I don't know when I go back to your earlier question about Andreessen, it's like they have so much money. It seems like they'll throw money at anyone, except as long as, you know, when it comes to VCs, they're not going to throw that much money at women or minorities. So Right. And, and so like to be very cynical, right? Like he's in some ways a proven winner, right? Like in a, in just yeah, the he, worst he made possible money way. for investors, despite yeah. what he did to the company and his employees. Yeah, exactly. And he's comparable in a lot of ways to Elizabeth Holmes, just to bring up another example, playing in a very different space, right? And she's on trial and, well, I mean, has been on trial and went to court for misleading investors. And he has been called out in kind of the public sphere in many ways, but like not to that extent, right? He's never been prosecuted for anything. No. Yeah. And it's just a, an interesting parallel to see like, well, if you do this, but you get the outcome that we desire in this one very specific, very practical from a VC perspective point of view, like then you're a winner, right? And you're a two-time winner and we'll back you. And VCs famously also just back, they'll back familiar losers, right? Especially... Yeah. I mean, to fail your other people point, people who fail upward, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But especially to your other point, if they like pattern match kind of, unfortunately, what people are looking for in general, which is like the white man of a certain age or whatever, right? So Yeah, who speaks a certain way and tells yeah. a good story. That's yeah. one thing Adam Newman knows how to do. Boy, does he ever. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> even while all the WeWork stuff was happening, we had him at uh, Disrupt one year. And, you know, I yeah. probably my colleagues don't love me reminding people, but I think <laughs> it was 2019. And he spun quite a yarn and like everybody was transfixed by it while it was happening. And probably with this, you know, they will be again. And I so just one final thing about this is I think Lucas covered it, but I'm sure you're very close to the news as well. Andreessen yeah. just raised or announced at least another $4.5 billion fund that they're putting into to Web3. Yeah. Is this what you're talking about? Like they just have all this money and they're like, where do we stuff all these dollar bills? Like who, <laughs> I, who can I come around so to, to take speak, it? That's definitely part of it. Like they've made some <laughs> smart bets, but that is the VC model, right? Like you just kind of like the spray and pray approach. And, yeah. you know, we, we it's the biggest. I mean, Lucas reported the story uh, today and it's actually the biggest 
crypto fund that's ever been raised from Anderson. Wow. So, and, and I'm sure a lot of that was raised sort of before the market started seeing this downturn. So yeah. it's going to be interesting to see like what companies Andreessen thinks they can get into for really cheap at this point and which of them end up taking off and which end up being duds. Yeah, because they did, this is more than double their last fund, I think, right? Which is last I think, year. Yeah, it's, it's, around, it's around that size. Yeah. And do they just try to bolster their existing champions or is that the way the fund would even work? Would they go back into a bunch of the companies they were already in even just a year ago? I think actually at the seed stage, their initial investment, they cast a really wide net. But then mm. to actually get that sort of follow-on support is, is a lot harder. So mm -hmm. this is, uh, you know, seed investment from Flow Carbon and Andreessen definitely cast a wide net when it comes to the earliest stage companies. But they're not the type to necessarily stick with those companies for years and years. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope you continue to follow this story. And then we'll look forward to your eventual novel being optioned. And then... <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. I hope they don't make a Netflix series about me, or at least not in the same way they did about Adam. So No, no, no. You can just be an exec producer and they'll come <laughs> back, reprise their roles for, yeah. for the sequel in about <laughs> five years time or so, right? Totally. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Daryl. OpenAI and Google are both creating AI that generates pictures based on a written description, although neither seem to have completely nailed it just yet. This next article was written by Devin Coldaway, and we're going to hear from Devin right now. Hi, Devin. Hey. All right. So AIs are doing all the drawings, better art than humans could ever do. Is that the whole story? Yeah, artists are done. <laughs> AI is the future, and all art will be Shiba Inus from now on as well, wearing hats. So for listeners, in case you're wondering, I, I mean, the story we're referencing is in the show notes. So go have a read if you haven't yet. But it's Devin's story from this past week. The headline is OpenAI. Look at our awesome image generator. Google, hold my Shiba Inu. Because yeah, there was, there was having... some discussion over whether that headline <laughs> made any sense. <laughs> just, but I just went for it. Uh, it makes enough sense. Just like these images. Yeah, just enough. Yeah, AI generated <laughs> headline. They're coming for that too. Yeah, no kidding. But yeah, we saw, I think the DALL-E 2 stuff, a lot of people probably saw. I saw it. I immediately signed up for the waiting list because that one is available to the public, although not to me yet. Yeah, the uh, there was DALL-E. DALL-E, the first one was cool. And then DALL-E 2 was like a, this huge leap over the first. And everybody was like, how did you guys do so much improvement in like, you know, six to eight months? Then they, but they also, you know, they changed some other things about it. And I think they wanted to make it more of a something that people could actually use. Yeah. And it seems like that. Like basically, do you have access to open AIs? No, I, I use some other AI art generation things, but I probably should have signed up. I bet they'd let me in just because I'm really cool. You're but, special. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, true. I'm special. Other people aren't. So uh, <laughs> skip the line. But what you do when you use these is you basically go and type a phrase and then the AI generates an image that corresponds to that phrase. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's right. And OpenAI is Dolly, Dolly 2 right now. And then Google put out this new one, which is they call Imagen or Imagine. Is, it's kind of, it works better uh -huh. as a written joke because it's yeah. Imagine, but you would definitely say Imagen. Mm -hmm. And, and what, they, what they kind of found out is that what matters the most is how good the language part is. I mean, not necessarily like the most, the most, but like it really matters that the language model part of the AI understands what you're saying. Because right. if you say like, you know, they have an example of like a panda making latte art or something like that. Sometimes the 
panda is making the latte. Sometimes the panda is in the latte. Like if the language model doesn't understand what you're saying, then it can't draw it correctly. But if it understands really well, then that's kind of a solved problem. And that's what Google sort of figured out. They're like, okay, so the language model is the really important part. And then the actual drawing part, still hard, but is secondary to that. Yeah. And that's interesting because it was kind of for a long time, that was like the big hurdle with translation, like through machine learning and through AI, right? It was like it would just spit out something that resembled kind of what you had input in the other language, but the syntax was all off. And like, in some cases, it's nonsense to the person on the side of the translated language. But it seemed like that was a big sticking point there. And then they got over that hurdle. But it seems odd to me that they didn't realize that that was a crucial component here. But I guess there's a lot in this that is not necessarily intuitive, like when you're actually working with developing advanced AI systems. No, it's super not intuitive. And no one really understands quite how it works, how the all the how the encoding is done in the model. Like, how does it map language to the image? How does it, you know, come up with some of this stuff? Why does it choose this shape or this whatever? No one really knows. It's, you know, like every large model, it's kind of a black box. Yeah. But you can you can fiddle with it and you can say like, okay, well, what if we have a really small, the language part is really small and efficient and then the image generating part is much larger and uses a larger training set. And what they found, I think, is that the results are better when you go heavy on the language side and light on the image side. Or or if you skimp on the language part, you're going to end up with bad results because it'll be nonsense. If it doesn't understand the prompts, it'll just draw garbage, essentially. Yeah, And we've seen that, I think, with a lot of the early tools, like based on my usage of some of the earlier tools or simpler tools, I suppose, that were like open and publicly available. They generate results that are cool, especially if you're stoned, (laughs) (laughs) like that don't really represent anything, right? Yeah, they... They can be uh, abstract, let's put it, but yeah, yeah. sort of incoherent at times and surprisingly still interesting to look at. And you're like, wow, sure. that's actually really well done, but like it's clearly garbage. And so these ones now, like how close are we to the point? Because I, you know, this is like tangential to my job at TechCrunch, but I also spend a lot of time on YouTube and there <laughs> I just see... I've seen a lot of thumbnails recently that are just like, oh, check it out. It's Dally 2 replaced my thumbnail artist or whatever. And some <laughs> of them are pretty like dark. It's like, can Dally 2 replace our graphic designer? And it's like, what? <laughs> the person's right there. He's probably watching this, <laughs> yeah, fearing yeah, for his job. Yeah, he's like, uh, I, I'm not going to watch this particular video. <laughs> I refuse to <laughs> thumbnail it. They're like, that's, that's fine. You've got, yeah. got the AI. It seems like there's a lot of people suggesting that we're getting close to that point where potentially for a lot of uses, these systems could actually replace a human artist or illustrator. Do you think that's like a valid concern? I think that the results, they pass a really light sort of look. If you just were to see something out of the corner of your eye, you'd be like, oh, that's definitely a real thing. But it really, within five seconds, anyone can tell that it's an AI-generated image because there's all kinds of little weird things. And we're, our eyes, like our systems are very good. I mean, our brains, our systems mm-hmm. are very good at telling what is real and what is not because we've learned so much about how things are supposed to look. I don't think that they're going to replace human artists in any particular way, but they will augment them. And, and you know, I have friends who work in you know, yeah. art and cinematography and like doing this kind of AI generated stuff is very helpful for them because the AI is 
it's naive and it's creative in a weird way. It produces compositions and combinations of elements that are really interesting and that people wouldn't really think of. So like when you start with, you can use the AI as a, a helper tool the way that you use any other tool in an artistic process. And it helps you generate a weird idea for a new creature for your game or whatever, where you're like, oh, I never would have thought putting the legs like that because, mm-hmm. you know, I would never, you know, it just never occurred to me. But once the AI has created this cool little drawing, you wouldn't want to put that. It's not a finished product. It looks stupid. And yeah. you, but then you use that as a basis. You paint over it. You animate it. You do other stuff with it. So I think it'll, it'll be an assistant. It'll be a helper tool the way that so many other tools are where people said, oh, well, now that you can do this in Photoshop, nobody's ever going to do this in real life. And that's never, that hasn't really panned out. Right. I do have a friend who is a poet and uses neural networks and like programming them to generate kind of like new poetry, visual poetry. But he's like the human in the mix is an important part. Right. That seems to me like it will never change. Like it just seems like it will always be collaboratively generative. Like even if you get to a point where you get a system where you can say, oh, draw me a picture of the Shiba Inu riding the bicycle and it looks like a photorealistic Shiba Inu riding a bicycle to everyone who looks at it, the human can still take that and remix it in an interesting way or use it as part of a larger project that is beyond the sophistication of the system or just wouldn't be something that it would come up with. Yeah, I think that's how it'll go too. It's just right now, certainly it's not good enough. But, you know, I don't want to speak for, you know, five, 10 years down the line when, you know, you look at GPT-3 and how good it is at producing something or other. Yeah. And and you're like, oh, that's really good. I can still tell it's a little off. But, you know, in five years, will you also be able to tell? How will it be used? Will it generate form emails? Will it be a virtual right. assistant or what? It'll definitely be there and people will use it, but I don't think it'll fully replace a lot of creative processes. A few that are less creative or don't require as much human input, perhaps. Yeah, I think that if you look at the example of robotic process automation, right, that's always the argument made in that kind of realm is, well, we're doing stuff that, yes, technically it is replacing a human doing this, but it was sort of mind numbing drudgery and it frees them up to work on better things. So, yeah, if you need a graphic for your keynote presentation, Mm -hmm. hey, the AI can handle that just great. And then we can work on your larger issues or I can paint the new Sistine Chapel or something. Me, yeah. me specifically. Yeah. yeah, we'll see. We'll see about the Sistine Chapel. We haven't seen the AI's sort of magnum opus yet because everything is like Shiba Inu's wearing hats. No one has tried to do anything. <laughs> I mean, there is some cool stuff out there, but it's mainly dogs and hats. All right. I think that's a good place to end. Mainly dogs and hats. <laughs> it's a good summary of the state of uh, visual AI right yeah. now. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. And remember to check out all the stories we talked about in this episode on TechCrunch.com. Also, we've got some amazing events coming up, including the TechCrunch Climate Sessions event, which is on June 14th in Berkeley. And tickets are on sale now. Check out all the other TechCrunch podcasts, Found, Equity, and Chain Reaction. See you next week. The TechCrunch podcast is hosted by me, TechCrunch Managing Editor Daryl Etherington. It's produced by Maggie Stamets. Henry Pickovit manages all the studio products here at TechCrunch with audio engineering and editing from Kel Keller and Maggie Stamets. 